Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, tonight, I am very excited to have Dr. Sandy Gluckman joining us. Um, Dr. Gluckman is a psychologist who has been on a tour um, helping parents take charge and take charge in a lot of different ways in not only um, looking into a different way of looking at their child's disorder, but also advocating for it. And um, as any of the listeners know, because I've been beating you over the head with it, um, I've been researching and writing about finding the organic basis of anxiety in children and teens for 10 years. And Dr. Gluckman has been doing the same thing. So tonight you are going to get a double dose of how anxiety can affect your child's behavior and ability to learn. So I'm honored to introduce Dr. Sandy Gluckman. Hi, how are you? Hello, Marianne. It's such a great pleasure to be talking to you this evening. I'm so glad you made it. You know, um, on your website, you know, you, you, you say parents take charge, helping the body do what it knows best. And, you know, you, you write about the degree of stress-related problems in children um, reaching epidemic proportions, and I could not agree with you more. And when we talk anxiety disorders, we're not just talking about an anxious child. We're talking about obsessive-compulsive disorder, panic disorder, phobias. I mean, you know, it's it's not something yeah. to take lightly. So, you know, why don't we start off by um, you telling us statistically, um, you know, what are the statistics of children with learning, behavioral, and mood disorders? Well, they're absolutely staggering, Marianne. Um, there are about 16, 16 million children who have now been diagnosed with attention, behavior, and learning problems. Um, one out of every five school-entering-aged child will be diagnosed with some kind of learning or behavior or social condition, and the trend is expected to get worse. Um, listen to this one, Marianne. Every 15 minutes, a parent will get the diagnosis that a child has autism, um, the number of um, kids in special ed classes in the United States in the last 10 years has increased by 46.9%. And um, ADHD is the leading disorder in the world. 20 million prescriptions written for Ritalin in 2009. And I could just go on and on. Each day thousands and more are being diagnosed with ADHD, Asperger's, dyslexia, Tourette's, as you said, um, OCD, bipolar, depression, and so on. There's definitely something wrong with the story. You know, and that's interesting because, you know, you know I, I interview a lot of experts, and you get different opinions. Um, but, you know, what do you account for this incredible increase? I mean, you know, it, do you feel that it, it, it's that more children are dysregulated for whatever reasons, be it organic or environmental, or do you feel that we have such better diagnostic tools? You know, I definitely don't think we have better diagnostic tools. Um, and I think that particularly with ADHD, for example, here's a scary one, and that is that um, the tools to diagnose ADHD have not been updated for the past 50 years. And it's a very subjective form of, uh, of diagnosing ADHD. So I don't think it's the tools at all. I think that there is a 500-pound um, a gorilla in the room, and nobody's talking about it. And, and that is the gorilla's name is stress. And it seems to me that um, 
we are um, medicating a lot of the symptoms that are triggered by stress, but we're not dealing with the stress issue itself. And that's right. why I think we're, we're seeing so many children who are being diagnosed who are not being cured. Um, in fact, they may get the original diagnosis of, say, let's say, for example, a, a learning disorder or an attention disorder. And, um, and that one, you know, it, it, the doctor could medicate that one, so the symptom is lying medicated. Um, and then the child will develop other symptoms. It may develop allergies or asthma or headaches or all kinds of other conditions. And really what it's suggesting to us is that the stress has not been looked at. We haven't taken note of the trigger. The trigger is stress. And if we don't deal with the stress, then we're going to get all kinds of uh, symptom substitution in this poor child who then get lots of different diagnoses, diagnostic labels, and lots of different medications. And, yeah, I can't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I, I think that medications have its place. Um, you know, that that's my personal opinion. Um, but they are a treatment. And oftentimes, like you said, um, you know, there, there are times that um, children can be put on a medication and it can bring out a different disorder or it can worsen the situation. In some cases, it, it wow. you know, puts a Band-Aid on the problem. But realistically, um, chronic ongoing stress will affect the immune system the endocrine system, and a lot of other systems in the body. So, you know, I even um, posted one of my old blogs um, that I wrote years ago, um, how prenatal stress affects the um, unborn child and, you know, can, can, can create problems. I mean, stress is really so underestimated in, in our society as to what it does to the body. Oh, yes, I, I, I totally support that statement. And I also want to agree with you that I am not anti-medication. I am simply saying that let's look at medication as a last resort, not as an immediate um, um, attack on the issue. So, um, yes, a medication definitely has its place, but I, I, I'm going to put a statistic to this and probably stick my neck out and say that about 85% of the children who are on medication may not need that if we would look at the issue of stress and the kind of malfunctions that stress is causing in the body and the spirit of the child. You know, I think that, that the way you put it is is great because you, you said if we would look at, and I think that that's the problem, that, um, you know, there needs to be harmony when you're dealing with a child um, as far as yes. dealing with the psychiatrist and dealing with other specialists. So I want to back up a bit um, because you spoke before about asthma and other conditions that stress can trigger. And I want you to go into yes. that a little bit more, um, you know, how it would affect the immune system and how stress could bring out health issues. Right. So I think what we really may need to do first is update a rather outdated definition of stress. Because I think that um, we have for many, many years thought of stress as something that is an emotional, psychological issue. So um, somebody is the child is experiencing stress and is emotionally distressed, and that, that equals the stress, and therefore we require therapy. But I think that it's important for us to notice that the definition of stress has, has um, become much wider and much larger and um, I define stress as anything that is either physiological and or emotional that's going to cause an imbalance in the body and the spirit of the child. 
I also would like to say here that that the um, that the um, spirit and the body, the imbalance in body and spirit, always go hand in hand. You can't have an emotional imbalance, or what I call a ba an imbalance in the spirit of a child, without getting the physiological ramification of that, and vice versa. You can't have a malfunction somewhere, let's say, for example, in the child's um, digestive system, without getting an emotional ramification of that. So they, they do go hand in hand. So it's important for us to expand our definition and understanding of what causes stress. And it could be, of course, any toxins, uh, emotional toxins, where, where there is a relationship or an environment that's hurting the child. But it can also be toxins in the environment. Um, so we could have pesticides or, or um, we could have um, the child developing um, food allergies and we haven't detected it or it could be that the child has um, al um, has um, parasites or bacteria or worms or fungus in the um, intestines and that has remained undetected and is doing it's it's um, it's it's causing a great deal of malfunction so I think we have to first understand that that um, stress is caused by a malfunction in the body and the spirit and therefore we need to look at both and we need to um, look at the underlying causes of right. what we're seeing when we go into the doctor's rooms. And you know, oh, I just love that because you know for me it's always what came first the chicken or the egg. Um, yes. You know yes. is it you know I think that people parents teachers you know myself um, psychiatrists they look at a behavior and they assume that it's a psychological problem. And I yeah. think sometimes you have to look at what came first, the chicken or the egg. Did a health problem, an organic basis, create the yeah. behaviors? Or are the behaviors solely behavioral from environment or, um, you know, many reasons? So, you know, I think that it, it's just so important that that not be undervalued. Um, you know, th th there seems to be you know, a tendency, as I just said, by parents and educators to um, underestimate um, the anxiety when they see it in children. So, you know, there why, why does everyone do this? Well, you know, if I could just quickly respond to your chicken and egg situation, because you summarized it so well. I don't think it really matters about which one came first because they will always go hand in hand. So if it happens to be that the child has a, let's say, for example, a vitamin deficiency, and nobody has noticed that. Let's say a lot of these children have got magnesium and zinc deficiencies. So it's remained undetected, and as it remains undetected and grows worse, it will actually cause all kinds of behaviors that look like... Um, um, either mood disorders, you know, meltdowns mm -hmm. or depression and, and learning problems. But really, it is a vitamin deficiency. So whether the, the physical problem came first or the child lives in a divorce situation and that's affecting the child, they will always um, interact with each other. So it doesn't really matter for me which came first because they will go hand in hand. Right. And let's throw vitamin D3 into that mix too. Absolutely, <laughs> right. yes, uh, Absolutely. and and also the omega 3s are playing yeah. a huge role at the moment. So to come back to your your next question, and that is why are we ignoring stress? <laughs> I've 
I've been looking at this and I, I'm just wondering, is it, uh, is it because maybe it's an ego issue? You know, maybe we are embarrassed to say that um, our child has stress. Maybe it seems like a sign of weakness for a parent to admit that the parent is stressed. Uh, maybe we believe, you know, I've heard every excuse you can imagine after working with thousands of people of why they should ignore stress. My favorite one is, I'm too stressed to worry about stress. Okay. You know, it's basically like, don't talk to me about stress. I'm getting on with it. Um, I want to be in denial about it, and I'm just going to fight through it. Well, that's okay when you're an adult, but when you're a child, that's not okay. They don't have the tools to deal with it. And, and you know, Marianne, we, and, and it affects learning. And that's, I think, a big piece of the puzzle that so many educators and parents miss. You know, and they yes. try to find other reasons for the learning disabilities. So, you know, why don't you talk yes. a little bit about how it affects learning? Okay, so here's a fascinating thing. And that is that um, the latest research is showing that stress creates inflammation in the body. And when I say inflammation, I guess we need to also update our definition of the way we think of inflammation because and normally we think of inflammatory diseases or conditions, you know, such as arthritis. But what we are discovering is that a stressed child has an inflamed body and inflamed bodies have inflamed brains and inflamed brains can't learn. Well, what, so, let's, back, let's be, tell us more about what you mean by inflamed. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, think of it as a smoldering fire. So what happens is the child is stressed. It's tense. Um, it's, um, the tension and the body is in, in, on alert. It's like um, in fight or flight all the mm-hmm. time as though there's a constant threat in the child's life. And this chronic stress raises the level of cortisol and now we have the body beginning to be inflamed like there would be a smoldering fire in the body. And then what happens is that for every child, that smoldering fire will go to areas of vulnerability, predispositions in the child's body and brain. So for different children, it will be different places that that this, this inflammation or smoldering fire attaches itself to and then causes um, uh, causes malfunction. So I'm really saying that a lot of people will say ADHD is genetic um, or it's inherited, and I absolutely do not believe that. I just believe there is a predisposition that could lie dormant forevermore, but because the stress triggered the cortisol, which triggered the inflammation, that inflammation will then trigger that vulnerability or that predisposition. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree with you about the inflammation, and there's no doubt that um, the stress does um, turn on switches. You know, I do think that, you know, ADHD in particular is very hereditary, but I think that it's also, um, like you said, it, it's, it's you know, it's a switch that these kids have. It's a gene, and it's going to either get turned on or not get turned on, you know. I like that. I like the way you put that. It, it's a gene that gets turned on or not turned on, and it's the stress that will turn the gene on. So doesn't it make a lot of sense for us as parents and educators and and, and healthcare practitioners to make sure that we deal with the stress so we don't turn uh, turn on any of those genes that are lying in the child's body? 
Right, and you know that that's always a fear with you know medications also. And as I said, I am absolutely not anti-medication, but um, you know, as a for instance, I'm just going to give an example. As a for instance, you know, if you have a child that has a mood disorder and you use the um, neuroleptics, mm. you know, you, you're going to affect hormones. So if or, organically unknowingly your child has an endocrine disorder or an endocrine disease and you're giving them neuroleptics, you're going to worsen the situation. Ah, so, you know, that's why it's always such so difficult, for, you know, in parenting. This, I mean, it's not easy. You know, this isn't, isn't a cut-and-dry thing where, you know, you just have a, a calm house and everything will be fine. There, there are so many factors involved here. There are. And, and um, to go back to your, your example of, you know, neuroleptics will... Um, affect the hormones, but they they also um, once the hormones are out of balance, the inflammation increases. So all of this goes back to inflammation, and inflammation is being um, described as the hidden disease, mostly because or the secret disorder, mostly because doctors are not looking for it, um, and um, and it just grows and grows and then does its damage. Well, so say the damage is done. Okay, you're at that point where the child is, is having an inflammatory reaction, um, they're over-firing, the pituitary adrenal axis is going crazy, the cortisol is going crazy. How do you address this? I mean, I think that that's well, really the key question. I mean, prevention, obviously, is the best way to go, but you've already got what you've got. How does a parent address that? Okay, great question. So it, uh, I would suggest that the parent, first of all, understands that... Um, the the body and the spirit are misfiring at the same time. So the parent must have a comprehensive approach for addressing this. So let's deal with the body first. Um, the, it has already ha- happened, as you suggested. The damage is done. There's an inflammatory reaction. Inflammation is growing in this child's body and attaching itself to all, all the vulnerable areas. So it has done its damage. The first step I would suggest is that the, child, that the parent be educated and, and informed enough to say, I want to find out what damage has already been done. And there would be a very high chance that that parent may find that there are parasites, bacteria, a great deal of fungus, lots of toxins in the body. And so um, whatever that, that, that um, discovery process brings to bear, that will get treated. So they will get antifungals or they will get anti, uh, um, um, whatever they require for the uh, different kind of worms, etc. So we must first remove the damage that's been done. Then the second thing is we have to, uh, as parents, know how to um, stop any further inflammation. And, you know, um, Marianne, there's such wonderful tools that parents can learn. I teach them on my workshops about how to actually trigger the healthy chemicals in the child's body. You know, we, we need the healthy levels of dopamine and cortisol and serotonin and adrenaline and noradrenaline and so on. And there are just most simple, wonderful tools that take three minutes a day or four minutes a day. And um, while the child is doing that with the mother, both the mother and the child are triggering their healthy chemicals. And so the body is able to actually start healing itself, which it, it is capable of doing. We just need to create the conditions for that. You have to give us an example. Okay. <laughs> so for That example, just sounds too good to be true. <laughs> no, it, it's not. It's too wonderful. 
Um, I mean, first of all, um, one of the chemicals that, that gets depleted um, when we have a lot of stress in children is oxytocin. And yeah. oxytocin is, we want to enhance the oxytocin in a child's body. I'm just giving you one example. Mm-hmm. Also, endor- endorphins get depleted. Great, great example. <laughs> So, so now here, you know, I actually have a program for parents, which I, I, I show them. What do you do at breakfast? That takes three minutes. Um, what do you do on the way to school? It's a two, three-minute thing. What do you do when you fetch them from school? Uh, what do you do before homework, and what do you do before going to sleep? Five, three-minute activities a day, and these activities can be um, simple things like um, breathing, to teach the children the right way for of breathing. Um, because when you breathe correctly, that will that will enhance the oxytocin. It will enhance the endorphins. Actually, good breathing also um, um, massages the um, the uh, lymphatic system, which will help the child to to re- release waste more easily. So there's one example. The other one is. Um, Cross what we call cross lateral activities. These are left brain, right brain activities. They are such fun. They take three minutes. Everybody is laughing, but at the same time, what we are getting is the, both sides of the brain are working. So um, it's an activity. There's several activities that I teach that cause the left brain to go across to the right brain, back to the left brain, back to the right brain, and now what you're getting in enha- enhanced vitality, enhanced ability to focus. So there are a whole bunch of those tools, very easy to learn. And when I teach them in the classroom, the parents love them. It's just, they ask for more and more. And easy to put into your day. You know, it just make it a normal way of living. And what you're doing is giving the child a gift because every time they are done, these exercises are done, you are triggering the healthy chemicals to fight the, the uh, malfunctions in the body. Yeah, that's incredible. And you know, I, I you know, and it's 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 also giving them tools to self-soothe and learn how to manage their stress themselves, which they're going to need for a lifetime. So, you know, that yes. it, that's really yes. it's so important because I think a lot of parents are so stressed that they have these stress dysregulated kids that you know it, it becomes a vicious cycle. And uh, oh, yes. you know, that's that's Can I really tell you a the key story is, about. I'd love to tell you a story about what you just said. Uh, one of my um, the parents that consult with me, she has a little four-year-old, a very bright four-year-old boy, and um, but he has these these really um, severe meltdowns. And we were working on um, on her breathing because you know it's important that she doesn't show the stress because the child picks up the stress. And so she was working on her breathing, and then we taught him to work on his breathing. And um, and one one day he was having this meltdown, and he said, she asked him, you know, what is happening inside you? And he said, my my engine is on high, and I don't know how to stop it, mommy. So she taught him the breathing, and then he came home from school one day, and um, he said, mommy, my engine went on high again, but I did the breathing, and it went went away. Wow. So it goes to, it goes mm-hmm. to your point that we are teaching them tools for life. Exactly, exactly. You know, and we're going to go into um, a di- another area, but, you know, what I, what I want to discuss before we, we leave this is, um, you know, as an example, my daughter 
was diagnosed with a severe anxiety disorder. She could not leave the house. She could not attend school. Um, she was locked in, in panic. And um, for years, it was just assumed to be a psychological problem. And as yeah. I became more confident and as I became more educated, um, I insisted on a full evaluation. And what was found was an endocrine disease. And when the endocrine disease was treated, the behaviors right. stopped. Um, so right. what I'm asking you now is where does a parent begin? Because parents, I think, are somewhat intimidated to really advocate. And um, where does a parent start to get really a full evaluation when they have a child with behavioral problems to rule out an organic basis? Right. Well, the, uh, I would say that the parent needs to find somebody, um, a practitioner who practices what is currently being called functional medicine or systemic medicine, or sometimes referred to as the biochemical approach. And what that means is that these these practitioners do not label or give the child diagnosis. They look for the underlying root causes. So you may walk into that, that practitioner's room with a child who's unable to sit still, totally distracted, is off the wall, especially in the afternoon, cannot focus, but they're really not interested in that. They see that as a symptom of something that's going on inside the child's body. And they have, they have a whole different way of taking a history and of, um, of, of doing their detective work to find out what it is that is resulting in the manifestation that you came into the consulting room with. So they don't really give that, those symptoms a diagnosis. They're looking for an underlying cause. So number one, I would say that the parent needs to look for a, a practitioner who knows how to look for these root causes because they do require different kinds of blood and hair and saliva tests than mainstream medicine would use. That's, that's the first thing. And so the parent is then, uh, that, you know, if there's something going on there, no matter what it is, toxins, vitamin deficiencies, food allergies, uh, um, uh, mercury in the system, whatever it could be, they will find it and they know how to, what tests to use and how to interpret those tests. And then the second thing is to be able to work with somebody like myself who um, understands the role of, of the spirit um, in causing that kind of um, disease or, and inflammation in the body so that we can work hand in hand in healing the body and healing the spirit because too often I see parents running to psychotherapists and I'm not knocking psychotherapists. I'm just saying that the best therapist in the world cannot help a child who, whose insides are being eaten up by fungus because that child's brain becomes inflamed, particularly the midbrain. And when you have an inflamed midbrain, the child cannot hear and retain and compute what the therapist is telling them. So they may sit in the room and look like they're listening, but they're actually not hearing, and they can't use what the therapist is telling them. And that's my example of we really need to work hand in hand with each other, the, the functional approach to the body and the functional approach to the spirit. And, you know, you refer to it as spirit. I, I've referred to it as the body's energy. And, um, you yes. know, I know that um, I one of, as we... Um, 
discovered, you know, my daughter's issues, um, you know, I had gone to see a doctor of Chinese medicine who worked with children in China who had um, Mm -hmm. mood instability, severe anxiety, Tourette's syndrome, and um, she worked through um, acupuncture. And when I met her and I, I spoke to her about what was going on and she explained to me that it, it's an energy in the body and it's a shifting of the energy that it's not just talk therapy and it's not just medication, that there has to be a, a, a shift in the body as well. And, you know, yeah. not all acupuncturists are the same, so don't get me wrong. But, um, I mean, what, what she's been able to do has been astounding. So, you know, it's a belief system. You know, I, I believe in the power of healing. I believe in using many, many methods to to help yeah. children. Um, but, you know, I think that it's going to come down to what we're going to go into now, which is advocating. Because, you know, you've been touring, um, having parents and teachers take charge. So yeah. um, why don't we go on and start talking about how a parent develops the confidence to take charge and why it's important to take charge. Yes. Well, I think the very first how is by becoming educated and informed about this whole new approach of what I refer to as healing from the inside out. There's just been too much of um, the outside in, by which I mean swallowing of, of medication, and without giving the body the opportunity to heal from the inside out. And, and Marion, I don't have to tell you, I know that you know, that the body's natural tendency is to seek homeostasis. It seeks balance, and it knows how to find the balance if we will help it. So I think that parents, first of all, need to change their mindset from the doctor knows everything to... Um, some doctors don't know everything and that I'm looking for a doctor who will help me heal the child from the inside out and that this is possible. And once they have what I call that vision, that vision of the child being able to have a healthy, natural, balanced body and spirit uh, without medication, then they can move forward to the next step. But if they're still stuck in the old belief that, um, that this can't happen, and that only the doctors know how to do it, then they won't be able to take the the second step. The second step is a rather challenging one, and that is that the parent needs to take a very long, honest look in the mirror and ask themselves, how am I unconsciously, absolutely unintentionally contributing to this child's stress and inflammation? Because... um, Children are very intuitive, they're very perceptive, they're like magnets. And when parents are stressed, as much as they believe they are hiding the stress from the children, those children are picking it up. Absolutely. So I think Mm. that the second step is for the parent to actually look at their own levels of stress, their own levels of of, of inflammation, and how is that inflammation manifested are they getting migraines? Are they getting uh, back pain? Are they having um, sleeplessness? Are they have bloated stomachs and putting on a lot of weight, which is aggravating them? Um, are they irritable? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And you, you can't have a parent who wants to advocate for a child who themselves is walking around in this incredibly stressed state and dealing with physical and 
and, and spirit manifestations of stress in themselves. It just doesn't make sense. So right. step number two is to be honest enough and say what I need to do about me and um, what I could be doing unintentionally to increase this child's stress. And, right. you know, that may well be that they need to actually go and have some um, kind of um, exploration into their own bodies, you know, look for um, some root causes of what they are experiencing. Right, and, you know, and also stress management because it's not easy. And then... Absolutely, and then the third step is to learn the tools that we spoke about. Um, because when, you know, I when the parents, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. on. Now I was just going to say, when the parents have these tools, then the parent and the child do the tools together. And as right. I said, it's it look it's five times three minutes a day, and both are healing themselves at the same time. Well, that's like when you're on a plane; they tell you put your oxygen mask on first. And it's the same thing. When you're dealing with a child with a mental illness or an anxiety disorder or a physical you know, illness, you put on your oxygen mask first. You have to be calm. You have to be collected. You have to be, you know, able to deal with situations. So, you know, you've got to get yourself under control before you can get your child under control. But um, I think also I love really... that analogy. Well, it's, you know, it's true. Um, you know, if your child's out of control, the worst thing you can do is be out of control. Um, you know, but yeah. I think also to back up, I, one of the things that I think is really important is that parents um, have the confidence to be a partner in deciding treatment. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and I think that the confidence comes from, first of all, their, um, their education and, and, and um, all the information that they're acquiring. And secondly, you know, the confidence comes from feeling well. When they feel well and they've seen some of the changes in themselves, they will know how to go to the doctor and what kind of, you know, they need, I think parents have given their power away so much. They need to be able to say, are you the kind of doctor who's going to look at underlying causes? Or are you the kind of doctor who's going to medicate the symptoms? Because if you're medicating symptoms, it's been nice knowing you, but we're not taking this relationship further. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I think that, as we said, there, there there is a place sometimes for medications, but it's not the, the answer. I mean, sometimes kids, you know, I think sometimes kids need a little bit of something to get them under control until you can find the cause, you know. Oh, I'm talking yes, about severe kids. Absolutely. As long as the doctor says, I do look for underlying causes, but I'm going to need some help from medication for a while. Right. Right. And some kids uh, need to be also, on it indefinitely, you know. Some kids just do. Yes, and we may find that. We may right. find that. But we would want to first explore, can we get rid of this with an antifungal? Right, no, or you know, or is there a you know? It's not even just um, you know bacteria or fungus. I mean, it could be you know cardiac issues and endocrine issues. I mean, you know, immunological. There, there could be so many different things that could be throwing the body out of sync that could manifest in behaviors. So, um, you know, I, I don't think any parent should be jumping to take their kids off of any medication. Um, no, I that's think not that absolutely not. I think that it has its place no. that a lot of children, um, you know, are doing very well. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that you still don't look for an organic basis. Um, so, you know, how do educators um, factor into this as far as taking charge? Well, the educators are, are giving us a challenge at the moment um, in the sense, Marianne, that 
a lot of teachers, unfortunately, are advocating medication first. And in some, in some schools, which horrified me, is that they, they actually say, I cannot teach your child unless the child is on medication. And you and I agree that there is a place for medication, but I, I do think that we need to at least have teachers informed enough to ask the question of, have you looked for any underlying causes um, before you put the child on Ritalin? Or, or, or any drug, I'm not referring to, I'm just using Ritalin as an example. So we need teachers to have a different conversation with the parents, you know, kind of becoming a team member um, of the parents' journey of, of finding out what's going on in the, in the body and what's going on in the spirit and working together. But unfortunately, I can understand the teachers' challenges in the classroom and that I can, oh, I can um, try to understand why they advocate for medication, but I think they're doing our children a very bad turn. Right, you know, well, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine a, a teacher approaching me and, and, and mentioning medication. I mean, that wouldn't be their place. But, you know, it, it's got to be very difficult. I say it all the time. You know, I couldn't do it um, for these teachers to have, you know, several children with disorders and um, have a class of yeah. 30 kids. I mean, it's got to be so overwhelming. So, you know, really what it really is boiling down to is collaboration that, um, you know, when you have a child, you need to, to form a team, and the teacher needs to be part of the team, the parent, yes. the psychiatrist, yes. and, and also, as you said, you know, that there has to, you know, the, you can't just dismiss the fact that there's a physical reason for the behavior. That's it. That's it. As long as the teachers could support uh, looking at the possibility of a physical fact for that behavior, but I think that a very large majority of the teachers don't even know that such a thing exists. They see it as a brain disorder, as a learning disorder, and that is the, the answer to that is medication. So I think, once again, education of teachers is very important. And my challenge is that there is often not enough uh, budget for that or even interest in that. And I think there's the stigma to that also because I think people hear mental illness and they forget to take the men mental out of it and hear the illness. So, um, yes. You know, I think that's a problem, too, that there is just a stigma, it's behavioral, it's bad parenting, um, you know, and, you know, the, a lot of these kids fall through the cracks. And listen, not you're not going to, I personally don't believe you're going to find an organic basis in every child. Um, you know, I'm right. sure that there there probably is, but I don't think you're always going to find it. But, you know, like I always say, you know, when you find that needle in a haystack, it's it's just unbelievable, the difference in the and child. Yes, and yes, and... Ah, oh, yes. The doctors that know how to do that have a higher chance of finding it, and they won't give up that easily either because they And you know what? It's not, always, it's not always, it's not the onus of the doctors to find it. I mean, parents, you've got the Internet. I'm not, you know, I don't think the Internet has all the answers. I think there's a lot of misinformation. But, you know, there's a lot of searching that you can do by putting things in that you mm. see in your child that will send up, you know, mm. some flags. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, um, I, I agree with you. I have had so many parents who have actually healed their own children by reading everything that they could read on the Internet and, and making connections for themselves and trying certain different foods and understanding the role of inflammatory foods versus anti-inflammatory foods. And So I agree with you. I think that parents yeah. can play a major role in um, healing these children. I mean, it took us, um, gee, I guess like almost nine years and five endocrinologists 
before we got somebody to listen. But, you know, you don't give up. Yeah. Um, no, you know, no. no, you just don't. And, you know, uh, we're we're out of time, but I, I really want to thank you. We, we're having a problem. I don't know if it's my Internet or if it's blog talk, but um, everything is blinking and I can't pick up any calls. Um, but I really want to thank you for joining me. And, um, you know, why don't you tell people where they can get in touch with you, what your website is, and, um, you know, make sure that uh, if there's a parent out there that's listening to this and there's a red flag going up, they know how to get you. Uh, thank you, Mary. And I'm available at www.parentstakecharge.com. Parents with an S on the end. Parents take charge, all one word, dot com. Terrific. And, um, you know, parents really, don't don't un- underestimate the stress in your child's life. Don't assume that it's all situational. You know, you've got nothing to lose by digging deep. You really don't. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, Dr. Gluckman, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, I wrote a blog today. <clears throat> um, my day started, as it always does, uh, with me getting up having my tea, reading my email, and for some reason today they got to me. And I was in tears. And it's unusual for me because, you know, I I get letters all the time from parents. They're heartfelt. And, um, you know, I I look at them with compassion, but I, I understand my limitations. And today it just got to me. And as the day unfolded, um, there's a little girl named Abby who has Down syndrome and she has leukemia. And um, her mom posted on the Coffee Clutch Facebook wall. And um, all Abby wants is for people to post on her Facebook wall, send her cards, and it just makes her so happy. So I posted that. And then I came home, and I see on Twitter that Elise, one of our hosts, is retweeting a tweet that there's this 15-year-old girl um, with um, cancer. And um, all she wants on her bucket list is to trend on Twitter. And it became very obvious to me why my morning started the way it did and how it ended the way it's ending. Because when I got home and I checked my social media, so many of the followers from the Coffee Clutch had wrote messages of well wishes for Abby on her Facebook wall. My cousin, Mm. friends of cousins, my children's friends, wrote, took the minute to click a button and put a smile on her face. I then switched back to Twitter to see Alice Bucket List trending. So basically what I'm saying is don't underestimate the power of human kindness because you may not be able to do anything astronomical and move mountains, but it's a small act of kindness that can change the life of a sick child. So say go on Facebook, Abby, A-B-B-I-E, versus leukemia. Give her a happy birthday. She's going to be eight on June 8th. And if you're on Twitter, trend Alice Bucket List. And she's also asking that people register at the Bone Marrow Donor. So these are two amazing young girls. Um, and human, you know, humanity is just really shining in social media for these children. As I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here at the Coffee Clutch. Thanks for joining us.